0: Welcome to the Healthful Woman podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, November 29th, 2021. Hope you all had a nice Thanksgiving weekend. And for those of you celebrating, happy Hanukkah. Today and next week, my guest is Dr. Emily Miller. Emily is a maternal fetal medicine specialist at Northwestern in Chicago, and she's terrific for many reasons. One of them is her passion for mental health, particularly surrounding pregnancy. Emily has been doing great research and advocacy and clinical care for people with mental health issues before, during, and after pregnancy. We had a long conversation about this critical topic, and we divided it into two podcasts on postpartum and perinatal depression. Today is part one, focusing mostly on postpartum depression, and then next week will be part two, focusing on the beginning and middle of pregnancy. In my own experience, Mental health is becoming more and more part of our everyday practice of obstetrics, and it's something we all need to be talking about. So I'm really happy Emily agreed to come on the podcast because she is truly one of the national leaders in this arena. All right. If you're new to the podcast, glad to have you. Be sure to check out prior episodes of this podcast, as well as our other podcast, High Risk Birth Stories, which drops every Thursday. If you listen to us on Apple, please do take the time to rate us. We're currently holding at five stars, and please also, if you have the time, leave us a short review. We'd really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. See you Thursday on High-Risk Birth Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Emily Miller, welcome to the podcast. I have been, I've been chasing you for a year now and Finally, I gotcha. You're on the podcast. So nice to talk to you.
1: So excited to be here.
0: What's going on? How's life in the windy city?
1: It's, I guess, akin to life all around. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> you know, living in a pandemic definitely has its changes. I wish we were not continuing, but, you know, we've got some tools in our toolbox and we're one foot in front of the other.
0: Love it. And, and we were talking before offline that you've got uh, your start in kindergarten. Well, not you personally. But uh, Emily Miller is a A physician, but she's she's in kindergarten. (laughs) You're going to be a kindergarten mom.
1: Yeah. My oldest is going to kindergarten and my youngest is about to start preschool. So very, very dynamic and actually learned a lot more from my kids than they have from from me. They teach a lot.
0: Very humbling lessons. Yeah. Well, you are are knee deep in the child raising stage. And I I have a lot of empathy, sympathy and love for you because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well. You are amazing. You are a physician. You're an MD. You're uh, an MPH. You're an assistant professor of OBGYN, maternal fetal medicine, and psychiatry at Northwestern. How'd you pull that off? (laughs)
1: I know people. Uh, (laughs) No, I, I, I mean, I'm just really lucky. The environment here is fantastic and really collaborative. And my research spans perinatal health outcomes in the mental health space and health services interventions for folks with mental health conditions. And so the Department of Psychiatry was willing to take me under their umbrella. And it's just been great to span both worlds. And, you know, obviously I was trained formally to speak obstetrics and to now be able to speak a little bit of psychiatry is has been a lot of fun
0: so our listeners get a sense of who you are where are you from how'd you get into medicine in the first place what's your story
1: yeah, sure. So I grew up in the Southeast, but I've worked really hard to get rid of my Southern accent. It, it'll pop out every now and again. So you might notice it. Migrated really specifically to colder and colder climates throughout my training and really landed for residency in Chicago. While it could get a little colder, this is kind of as far as I could extend the, the, the temperature. So I've been here since residency, did my MFM fellowship here and stayed on on a a Werther to NIH K 12 Mm -hmm. to really expand my research in perinatal mental health. And now I'm entering my, I think, seventh year as faculty.
0: Well, how'd you get interested in medicine in the first place?
1: You know, I I come from a family of musicians and.
0: Oh, that answers it. Yes, that's
1: obvious. (laughs) It seemed like a natural segue. But, you know, they they knew some people that were in medicine. And, you know, in my simple mind, the only people in medicine I knew were doctors, so I just said, That sounds cool and I want to be a doctor and I'm stubborn and, you know, when I have a goal I just am a dog with a bone. So I just I did that and, you know, really love the concept of a career that's built on the principles of being able to apply science. Apply in my mind, research is an art form. It's a tapestry that you, you know, get to create to be able to answer questions. And, you know, it's such a fulfilling job that we have to really get to take care of people. So that's, great. that's what I did.
0: And then when you were in med school, at what point did you know you wanted to do uh, OBGYN women's health?
1: It wasn't until my OBGYN rotation. It was the furthest thing from my mind.
0: Really? What did you think you'd be doing?
1: I thought actually pediatric infectious disease was something I toyed with, just the global health implications and again these are just you meet inspiring people and say well that sounds great i want to do this and not really having any context or or family that was in medicine and just kind of didn't know what to expect with anything and then on my ob rotation just had amazing mentors just really inspiring from the interns to the residents to the attendings and thought that this is really dynamic field of and vast opportunity for things to do. I knew I wanted to integrate clinical research into my career and it seemed like a sphere where there are a whole lot of questions that haven't been answered. So it would be longitudinally fulfilling.
0: and Is that why you got your master's in public health as well?
1: I knew I wanted to do research and get some foundations in effectiveness outcomes research. And so it felt like a time to take a step back and get those tools in my toolbox so that I could apply them throughout the rest of my training. I mean, the other piece, to be honest, is I was floored that I wanted to do OBGYN. And that's just a huge pivot when you're not thinking about that career path. And so having that extra year, I took a year between my third and fourth year to just reflect on what this would look like and make sure this is truly what I was committed to, it just gave me a little bit of breathing room to to think and reflect and be sure before marching forward.
0: Well, you ultimately did it and you ended up in in Chicago. And I'm gonna ask you two questions about Chicago. Number one, how long did it take for them to convert you into a Cubs fan? And the, sec- <laughs> and the second is how'd you decide to, to pivot, not pivot, but maybe go into the field of maternal fetal medicine? So start with the Cubs.
1: Yeah. most importantly yeah i will say i live in east Lakeview, um uh-huh. and the exit oh. i take off of lakeshore drive is kind of what's taken by effectively all of chicago on cubs game nights uh-huh. so i became a little bit less of a cubs fan cause <laughs> it extends my commute fairly dramatically and i'm i'm agnostic to baseball if it's not honestly soccer then i don't generally watch the sport Much to the chagrin of the rest of my family. So, oh oh
0: dear. Well, we're going to, maybe we'll edit that out (laughs) so people don't, people don't, people don't, don't just dislike you for that, for not liking the cubs. Okay. But it's fine. I understand you live in the neighborhood. It's tough. The lights are on, people walking around. Yeah. A lot of stuff going on. It's not, it's not quiet. That's for sure on game night. So, it's all good. Okay. So, so not the cuz, but you definitely are a fan of maternal fetal medicine because you did that. (laughs) So, what, what, what brought you into our neck of the woods?
1: Yeah, you know, I became really enamored with obstetric practice. And again, knowing I wanted a career in clinical research, it's just an area where we have so many opportunities from a translational science standpoint, from a clinical trials standpoint, from observational data and the nuances of interpreting observational trial observational data. From a health services standpoint, I think there's so many opportunities we have to improve the care that we deliver to pregnant people and improve intergenerational outcomes. So I felt like it was a space that was certainly ripe for clinical research, but it's also such a rewarding area to navigate through difficult complexities in a pregnancy with an entire family and kind of be that anchor for that family during difficult decision making.
0: Yeah. And You know, this podcast we're doing today is going to focus on, you know, postpartum, let's say postpartum depression, for example. How did you get so interested in that specific area? I mean, clinically, research, advocacy. I mean, you are really in there and you're doing a ton of amazing work for, you know, people who are either suffering from this or have family members suffering from this or are worried they may suffer from this or whatever it is. How do you get involved in that specifically? Because it, it's it's a little bit of a niche for maternal fetal medicine.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate that question so much. And there's a, a million stories I could tell. I think one that really resonates that was a pivotal moment for me was a, a patient I cared for. She was a patient pregnant person living with HIV and she had perinatally acquired HIV and had lost her mom to AIDS when she was young, when she was three years old. Her father had substance use disorder, and she was in the foster system. Her foster mother died of cancer when she was really young. Just all of this childhood adversity. And then, you know, this is in the early 90s, living with HIV as a child, as an adolescent, when these medical regimens are complex. And so needless to say, in the face of all of this adversity, she developed very significant depression and anxiety. And now fast forward to, you know, she becomes a young 20-something person and has is on very complicated HIV medications because she's developed a lot of resistance just, you know, due to the complexities that I described before. And to her, she wanted a family and had told her pediatric ID doctors, I want to get pregnant because having a family she's never she'd never really felt like she had one and that was going to be pivotal in her her wellness and this is something she'd really strive for even though her viral load was over a hundred thousand and she wasn't taking these medications and so i co-run our women's hiv clinic and assumed her care when she actually was admitted to our hospital with uh pjp pneumonia mm-hmm. viral load sky high Strong history of depression and anxiety. And, you know, we all came together social work, psychology, ID, MFM, pharmacy, you know, all the things. And we got her back on medicines and we got her viral load suppressed. And it was just this really exciting time where we felt like we had reached her. She didn't have any episodes of major depression throughout the first half of her pregnancy. And we were so excited that we had finally reached her after the you know, the pediatric team had tried for for years. And then at 24 weeks, she stopped showing up to our clinic and stopped answering our phone calls and stopped answering the door for the case managers that were coming to visit her. And we, you know, did everything we could to reach her and we couldn't. And she re-presented to the hospital with shortness of breath at 32 weeks with recurrence of PJP pneumonia. And What had happened is there was, you know, family turmoil with one of her siblings and it had precipitated another major depressive episode. And that had really unraveled everything that she had done to get to where she was. And she developed ARDS, ended up being intubated, going into preterm labor, delivering this beautiful, healthy baby boy. And she, she died three weeks postpartum. And I am, she never got to know, Consciously that she was a, that she had become a mother, and you know her goal of having her own family she had achieved. And I'm just convinced that you know we have all of this expertise in HIV perinatology, antiretrovirals, and management of ARDS and critical care of obstetrics, and that's that's awesome and that's fine. But if if we had been able to reach this person's major depressive episode and effectively treat her, I'm I'm just convinced she would still be with us today. And so it just amplified. You know, this perspective, if we as maternal fetal medicine physicians do not incorporate mental health into our practice, then we really can't call ourselves maternal medicine physicians. And so that kind of, that just we got the ball rolling and made me committed to filling the gaps where they need to be filled and advocating, educating, doing the things.
0: Your story so poignant because, I mean, someone would say, what's the cause of death? And they'd say, oh, she died of pneumonia. No, she died of depression. Right? Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean she took her own life, right? That's that's one way to die of depression, but it basically, it's what ultimately ended her life. And that's, you know, when we have these conversations with women either before pregnancy or early pregnancy who have, you know, who struggle with mental health and we're talking about treatment, you know, to those of us in the field, it's like mind blowing how all the messaging they're getting is the medicines are going to hurt your baby, right? The medicines are going to hurt your baby. And First of all, it's not true, okay, but even if there's some risk, right, and there's, there's there might be some risk, right, it's not zero risk, but it's very, very low, but whatever it is, how about your depression might hurt your baby yeah. and might hurt your baby's mother, who's going to hurt, right. that's going to hurt the baby, and so people just totally blow that off. And they're like, well, yeah. you know, like whatever, you know, you could, you could, you know, suck it up for the pregnancy and just take the message after you deliver. Like, no, that's not how it works. These are real issues here.
1: No, you're totally right. There's this great, uh, like, I mean, <laughs> here's my scientific reference, Huffington Post, but
0: um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a medical journal. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's in Latin.
1: You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I pop edited it, but it's this image and it's, you know, all of these cartoons of somatic illnesses and then. Kind of inserting depression, and there's so there's this person that's kind of over a toilet seat throwing up, and their friend beside them saying, "Have you ever, you know, tried just not having the flu?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I mean, I so obviously, you know, it's a jest, but it's this concept that we do that with depression, and it's a it's a major medical illness. It has there's neurobiology behind it, and you know, we can't. We would never conceptualize of like, hey, you know what? Just snap out of that preeclampsia. Like
0: just
1: <laughs> stop doing that or right. don't have diabetes. Just don't.
0: Right, right. But, but
1: we do that with depression. And I think we right. as just humans stigmatize yeah. mental illness and say, you know, pregnancy or not, just try to muscle through it or be stronger than that right. and instead of recognizing it as the as the disease that it is.
0: Right. It's like, what, what does this person have to be cancer about? Their life is so <laughs> wonderful. Why would they have cancer? They're, everything's going great for them. That doesn't make any totally, sense. It totally, can't be, you know, it's like you, you're like what? It like makes no sense whatsoever. But it's the same thing. Like someone who has an anxiety disorder or depression, they're not. It's not that they're just like not coping with things because they're weak. It's like that's a real serious illness. It's a it's a right. situation, and it's listen. That's why I'm I'm glad you're around. What what is it that you would say? I mean, obviously, this is—it wasn't new to you when you came to maternal field Medicine. This is something that obviously you you saw through medical school and residency and your fellowship. But I'm just curious—is there anything that sort of was a like a light bulb to turn on, like an aha moment uh, about understanding how critical mental health was? You told a story. Was it was it at that story, or was it something that? Maybe before just brought it to light.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, that's a, a story that I, that comes to mind often, and I I reflect obviously on that 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 particular patient and the impact that you know that I will carry forward for the rest of my career is is going to be there. I think we can all think about examples of when we just haven't been able to to reach a person or or. We haven't been able to have that connection, or the outcome hasn't gone in the same way. And I think those are oftentimes, not always, certainly, but oftentimes we can uncover, you know, what are both what are the psychosocial, what are the mental health, what are the social structural determinants of health that that played a role. And I think we're just not taught that in medical school in the same way, or historically, you know, a hundred years ago when I went to medical school, it wasn't. <laughs> you as went a hundred. Our... I
0: went two hundred. So thanks. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> but I also think. We do hard stuff in MFM, yeah. right? We manage complex cases. We will, you know, titrate antiarrhythmics for fetal benefit, uh, you know, thinking about in, in multidisciplinary ways with our electrophysiologists. We Like we do weird, complicated stuff. Screening for depression is, is really not that hard. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that we all become psychotherapists. I mean that would be great and that would be cool but that you know that's not within our sphere but the pharmacotherapy of of depression and anxiety is also not that complex and when we can talk about you know giving anti rejection medication for someone with a transplant in the nuanced fashion that we can it's hard for me to imagine why we feel like we don't need to do that for Pharmacologic therapy for mental health conditions. And so that's where I think, with the support behind us, it's something that is within our wheelhouse. Yep. To be able to talk about it, to be able to dose manage, up titrate. These are not foreign concepts to us. Yeah. I think we just need to develop this fluency.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say for, for me, I, I feel like I didn't get enough of this in medical school and even residency and probably fellowship. I don't think I really began to appreciate. How much mental health plays a role in health overall, and also in pregnancy? Until I was in practice, and you're actually because you're seeing so many more patients, and you have much more of a relationship with them, and you get to know them and talk to them, and I'm like, oh my god, so many people, right? Have you know? I have anxiety, I have depression, I have OCD, and and it's just it's part of their health, and you have to talk about it all the time. And I don't mean that in a negative way; like it is a part of their health, and you're addressing, you're talking about, you're thinking about it, and I never really understood that as much until I was really taking care of people. And I also, I think it was also the same time when I personally developed, I think more of not just an understanding medically, but sort of like an understanding in the in the empathy empathy sphere that, you know, because when you're a med student, you're a resident, someone comes in and like, you know, they have anxiety, depression and OCD and bipolar disorder. You're like, oh my God, this is going to be like so <laughs> hard to figure this out. And you're just like, But we don't do that with medical problems, so to speak, you know, it's just, and that's a shame and that's a problem. That's a problem in our training. And I really took until I was having these relationships with my patients to really begin to appreciate what they're going through. And I totally agree with you said, our our trainees are so comfortable saying, all right, we're going to start insulin on her. We're going to give her this dose, this kind, we're going to up by two units at this time. And because she's on insulin, I'm going to make sure she's on this hypertension medication there is complex stuff and you're like what about depression they're like i don't know you're like can't right. you just start some I'll zoloft yeah, i mean like, well, like you don't know how to prescribe zoloft i mean like it, it's like the craziest thing in the world yeah. it's like a hundred times easier than insulin right totally. and it, but and but that's just how things uh, it's getting better obviously uh, fortunately because yeah. of people like you but it's it's just traditionally it was it was like oh no that's psychiatry it's almost like when you know we always joke like oh no that's a woman Right. Gynecology, you know, no, she's (laughs) she's having, she's having a stroke. Ah, Gynecologist has to clear her, you know, right.
1: Right. No, it's totally true. And I think, you know, the flip side, and I I don't see this at all to disparage our colleagues in mental health, but you know, they, can often say, oh, well, you're, you want to become pregnant or you are pregnant. I can't, I can't manage this anymore. And so I think so many people fall through that crack of that intersectionality where they don't have someone that's comfortable or they're getting mixed messages or, you know, God forbid, they're reading these headlines that, you know, SSRI causes autism, That's just misinformed without a right comparison group. And I think all of these end up harming pregnant people. So I, I think this is something that, you know, I hope can, we can continue to Dialogue it in our sphere in our world, and then you know work with our, our mental health clinicians yeah. on the other side to make sure that their comfort level with pregnant people, you know, reaches <laughs> reaches our comfort level.
0: We're going to take a brief break to talk about our sponsor, Organifi. So Organifi makes a whole line of superfood blends, which are filled with vitamins, minerals, and micronutrients. Basically, they're a line of powders that you add to cold water, and it's going to give you a drink that's vegan, organic, gluten free, delicious and a great way to improve your overall nutrition. They're really user-friendly because you can get the powders in a large canister, keep it in your kitchen, or they come as individual packets that you can throw into your gym bag or into your work bag or whatever it is, and you can take them on the go. So if you're looking for a way to improve your nutrition, add some protein or an immunity boost or a green drink or even a probiotic, check them out, Organifi. That's Organifi with an I at the end. So all of our listeners get a 20% discount on Organify products. You can either go to any of our websites and click on the link for Organifi and automatically get the discount, or if you go to their website, www.organify, that's with an I at the end, dot com backslash Fox, you can get the discount. Or if you go to their website and when you check out, use the promo code FOX, you're going to get the discount. Now, Will from Organify emailed me that they're having a special. Black Friday to Cyber Monday sale. So from November 26th until the 30th, all of our listeners are going to get 25% off everything and free shipping on orders over $100. Thanks a lot. Back to the podcast. I want to focus on two areas almost backwards. I want to start with the postpartum period because that is sort of the time where for many people it's... They don't have a history of mental health illness or mental health diagnoses or mental health treatments, and it may be their first experience with depression or anxiety. And to talk about that, and then we'll talk about someone who does have that coming into pregnancy, because uh, I think the 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 former is sort of the the area that a lot of women who are pregnant are really concerned about. They're like, wait, yeah. like, is this going to happen to me? So, you know, how would you? define let's just let's take depression for now even though obviously Mm -hmm. there's anxiety how would you find define the difference between or when it flips from just typical standard god it's hard to have a baby and life is tough and i'm not sleeping well and i'm just not feeling great to hey you have postpartum depression you have a disease you have an illness you have a diagnosis yeah where does it change where does it cross the line
1: i think such an important question so when we talk about postpartum care and anticipatory guidance, you know, we talk a lot about this concept of baby blues. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll sidebar for a moment that that terminology makes me a little bit insane. I find it so pejorative. And it's like, if for example, someone with angina, right, we call that angina. We don't, we don't call it like, Ooh, it's a little oopsie heart attack, (laughs) or like a a TIA, isn't like a right, right? Ooh, a head owie. It's like it's a a diagnosis, and so not to (laughs) to pathologize baby blues, but it's just I think the language is so important, and when we when we minimize symptoms or don't kind of. Put it it, it, with any recognition behind it. I think it does minimize people's attention to it. But that being said, you know, the data would suggest that 50 to 80% of women will experience this quote unquote baby blues, which is feeling overwhelmed, tearful, crying, but still being happy. And that usually resolves within two weeks postpartum. Differentiating that from postpartum depression, I think the two path and mnemonic are the two very characteristic features of depression are either having a depressed mood, feeling down blue most days of the week, or what we call anhedonia, not enjoying day-to-day things. And again, that's not just, you know, at two in the morning when you're not enjoying getting out of bed and feeding your baby for the 800th time, but really not enjoying any part of your day most days of the week over the two prior weeks. And so one of the two of those needs to be present to meet diagnostic criteria for depression. And that's not to say that there can't be subclinical or subdromal or, you know, anxiety, like you mentioned, is such a huge component. But I think those are two things to keep in mind is, gosh, if you're starting to feel like that, then it really is time to reach out.
0: Yeah. How common would that be? So you said like 50, 80% will have something. But how common is it to reach the point that that's happening, that, that you know, most days of the week you are either really feeling depressed or you don't get enjoyment out of anything, really?
1: Yeah, it is not uncommon. So the data would suggest one out of every seven postpartum people will experience this. which That's not rare. You know, I mean, all of us can, you know, even outside of the OB community can think of seven pregnant people that we've known, one out of every seven. Will experience this. So, despite it's, you know, it's just shocking to me when you think about how common this is, and yet how little training we get in obstetrics yeah. on it. It's,
0: it's it's more common than preeclampsia. It's more common than diabetes of pregnancy. Um, yeah, it's it's on the order of the likelihood of a C-section. I mean, you're talking, totally. you know, and it's it it is amazing because the other thing that's that's so remarkable, you know, one in seven. All right, so ten, fifteen percent, you know, in that range. Okay. Yeah how many people have babies right so close to 50% of the population on earth yeah. right maybe not exactly 50 but it's it's right. up there and right. so you're thinking 10 to 15% of half of humans right, right. are going are going to experience this and have this it's the numbers are astounding how many people struggle with this and i would say a lot of people the the diagnosis is delayed a long time Right. Why is that? Why do so many people suffer for so long before it gets it gets recognized or never gets recognized, let's say, clinically. Yeah.
1: So this is I, I whenever I give talks on this, I show this graph, I think it's so eye opening. So, you know, a lot of people in the health services world will conceptualize of mental health care as a care cascade. Like well, each thing Kind of depends on the thing that happens before it so to walk this out specifically right for a person with postpartum depression to be ultimately like our goal is for her to have remission of her depressive symptoms for that to right. all go away but she first has to be screened and then once that screening has to be seen acknowledged and a treatment recommendation made and then she has to, link to that treatment or begin that treatment, and then even, you know, I mean, let's not fool ourselves, our treatments are not fail-proof, and so she has to respond to that treatment. Right, so each of those steps, if you march them down, the rate of remission for someone with perinatal depression, so these data are both during pregnancy and postpartum, kind of putting it all together, Mm -hmm. the chance that any individual will achieve remission of her symptoms is 2 to 3%. Wow. And that's contemporary meta-analytic data from the United States, like good quality data. And can you imagine that we we get something right two to three percent of the time? Like that's em- that's embarrassing, <laughs> it's terrible. And I mean, I just again in other somatic diseases, be like, oh wow, you know, gosh, two to three percent of the time we we manage her preeclampsia appropriately, <laughs> we wouldn't be allowed to be a field of medicine anymore. And so I think this should be really eye-opening That for something so common. We've got to get it right more often than this. It's hard to get it right less often.
0: Where is the ball being dropped mostly? Is it in the the screening phase or is it in the treatment phase, would you say?
1: The biggest drop-offs are for screening and then for that initial recommendation of treatment. And so that, to me, is a call to action for us as OB providers. But that's in our wheelhouse. These are our patients and we need to be screening with a validated screen and we need to, when we see that screen, interpret it, dialogue around it and recommend a treatment plan.
0: Yeah. And one one of the amazing things is, you know, one of the ways we've failed uh, in America over the years as OBGYNs is we would, you know, deliver these women and then they'd go home and we would see them six weeks later. And, right. you know, failure number one is- they probably need to be seen someone needs to be in you know in touch with them in less than six weeks and number Mm -hmm. two is at six weeks even then we weren't asking about it and we weren't really getting into it and so I do believe that over the years things have improved in terms of asking about it screening about it at six weeks but still there's the delay and what's so fascinating so in other systems in other countries and in other cultures, you know, postpartum care is much more intimate, right? There's a lot more visits, home visits, connections, you know, all these things that happen. Yeah. And and I think what's really fascinating is the people in the US that sort of, you know, took the ball that we dropped were the pediatricians. And mm-hmm. the pediatricians said, You know what? We're seeing these moms like every day, every week, you know, in the first six weeks we'll see them eight times. And so mm-hmm. you know what? We're gonna scream for postpartum depression, even though technically Our patient, so to speak, is the child. This is a family. And this child's, you know, birth mother is a critical part of this child's health. And we're going to make sure that she's well. And they Mm -hmm. started screening and they started picking up. And God bless them. That's awesome, right? Yeah. Because because I, I, I don't see postpartum women two days after birth and four days after birth and a week after birth and two weeks later. And if I did, that'd be great. But since I don't, they do. And they're really, they've taken the mantle. And I think it's just awesome.
1: Yeah, I think you're totally right. It's been great to have that kind of really be introduced and implemented into pediatric practice. I think I would imagine, and what I've heard from pediatric colleagues is it's just when you're going to screen, screening intrinsically by itself doesn't help anybody. Screening with initiation of treatment linked to it is what's going to help. And most pediatricians aren't comfortable with adult prescribing and so making sure they have the right linkage to what that next step is and feel comfortable with that adult counseling. But yeah, I mean, it takes a, a village and, you know, we can't think about this in the absence of what's happening now with COVID where it's also not uncommon for family members to notice, Hey, you're, this is different. You're acting different. Or "I'm, I'm concerned about you and encourage the postpartum person to reach out for help. But we don't see that as much now because families aren't flying in and there's not these, you know, this, this village that's around the postpartum person during the pandemic. So I think we need to, we need to pick that ball up and make sure that we're kind of inserting ourselves as part of that village.
0: I hope you enjoyed part one of my discussion about postpartum and perinatal depression with Dr. Emily Miller. Make sure to check out part two one week from today. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at H-W healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only and does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan. Paid sponsors of the podcast are not involved in the creation of the podcast or any of the content. Support for our sponsors should not be interpreted as medical advice from the podcast, the host, or the guest.